Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman, and I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. Okay, guys, I've cooked up something amazing with my friend Natalie Y. Beavers, founder of Angels of Epilepsy, and it's all yours for free now. Go to my website at uninvisiblepod.com and download your free ebook called Hacking Healthcare, a resource guide Natalie and I have compiled using not only our experiences in the healthcare system, but also with the assistance of other patient leaders who have added their two cents. From a message of empowerment to notes on navigating health insurance and your doctor's visit, this is an invaluable guide intended to make healthcare more approachable and to give you the tools you need to succeed. This resource has been incredibly eye-opening and important to us, and we hope that with it, you will see real results and improve your experience in the system. Once more, that's a free download of Hacking Healthcare at uninvisiblepod.com. Go check it out, guys. Thank you. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us. I am here today with David Mitchell. David lives with an incurable blood cancer called multiple myeloma. He's also the founder of Patients for Affordable Drugs, which is an organization that aims to end the monopoly that drug companies have on drug pricing and to assist patients in being able to access their drugs as needed. So David, thank you so much for joining us today. Lauren, thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's such a pleasure. I'm so glad to chat with you. I I think the work that you're doing with Patients for Affordable Drugs is so important and so exciting um, for so many in this community. Um, I know you alone have drug prices that are in the 800,000s per year. So um, we're going to get into all of that. But I think we should start at the very beginning of your story. And I'd love to find out when and how you first realized you were experiencing a health crisis and what steps you've since taken to control your health. It was about 10 years ago now that uh, I began to have recurring back pain. And it was back pain that moved all around my back. It was over here. It was over there. Mm. Um, And then I got uh, colds. But I didn't just get colds. Colds that knocked me completely for a loop. Uh, I thought the colds were just, you know, life. And I thought the back pain was from exercising. Uh, but one day, in fact, it was Halloween in 2010, Halloween morning. That's ominous. I, yeah, it was. When it wasn't funny, it was very scary. Yeah. I, um, I got out of bed and fell to the floor and I couldn't get up. In fact, I couldn't move. Wow. Uh, and I, you know, lay there for a while and then I called my primary care doctor and they prescribed some muscle relaxants, my relaxants and pain medications. And, um, I laid on the floor. Actually, this is the truth. My oldest son, uh, my, sorry, my youngest son who was home at the time, uh, thinks I today to this day thinks I'm crazy. I laid on the floor for 24 hours before I gave up and called, uh, the ambulance. Wow. And I went to the emergency room and they pumped me full of all sorts of painkillers. It was now Sunday afternoon, evening. And, you know, they said we could check you in and do an MRI, but you don't want to do that. Let's see if we can't pump you with enough painkillers to send you home. Uh, and then, you know, have an MRI done outpatient. Hmm. Well, um, in the ensuing three days, I saw other doctors. I finally went to a sports doctor. He ordered an MRI because I still thought I had a sore back from 
exercise. Sure. And um, when we went to get the results of the MRI, I had to wait in the car because I could not walk. I had to like recline the seat. Mm. Uh, getting around was a little difficult for those uh, four days. Mm. Um, and my wife and uh, now my oldest son had uh, come with us for this one, said we have to go right now to the emergency room. And I said, okay, do you want to tell me what happened? We have to go right now to the emergency room. Mm. Uh, so I was laying on the emergency room bed when a nice gentleman walked in and he said, hi, I'm Paul Thamby. I'm the oncologist on duty. And I said, oh, Dr. Thamby, you must be in the wrong place. I have a sore back. And he said, no, unfortunately, I don't think I am. Mm. What that MRI showed that uh, I did not know, and the sports doctor did tell my wife and son, but they, she like cried and was all upset. I didn't know. Mm. They pulled themselves together to take me to the emergency room. Right, I see. Um, mm. And uh, what I didn't know was that that what was on the MRI were lesions, all sorts of lesions, all up and down my spine. I had seven cracked ribs, uh, and I had a compression fracture of my T11 vertebra. Wow. How did that happen? It happened because multiple myeloma involves uh, your bones, mm. and it can involve your kidneys, too. I did not have kidney involvement, thank goodness. Um, uh, so multiple myeloma, uh, causes a situation where you start to make a whole bunch of these myeloma cells crowds out all the other cells that the good cells like yeah. white blood cells, platelets, red blood cells. And pretty soon you got <laughs> this cancer that is circulating through your blood with, and it goes to lots of locations, which is why they call it multiple myeloma. Mm. And uh, for many of us, it the excess myeloma cells park on your bones and eat them. Uh, wow. So uh, I didn't know until later when they did a full body x-ray, I have uh, holes in my skull and in my pelvis and in my forearm. Um, I, I don't have any uh, holes in my long bones. So I can do what I'm doing now. I function. Right. Uh, right. And they fixed my back by doing a thing called a balloon kyphoplasty where they go into your back and uh, they scrape out the broken vertebra and blow up a balloon to make as much space as possible. Then they pump in some cement. And one night uh, oh. I went to have that surgery and when I woke up the next morning, the doctor came and he said, get out of bed. And I said, I don't know if I can get out of bed. He said, we're going to find out. Get out of wow. bed. Uh, and I could walk. They fixed it. That's uh, an incredible surgery. I mean, it sounds unbelievably complicated, but wow. It doesn't work for everybody either. So mm. I'm very lucky. Uh, wow. So that set me on a journey that any cancer patient would understand and other patients who are diagnosed with conditions that are life altering because, mm. you know, that's that in motion, five rounds of chemotherapy um, and then harvesting uh, my, uh, my, what harvesting my cells, my good cells to, um, to be able to do an autologous stem cell transplant. Uh, okay. We didn't do it. They're in a freezer in Boston. Okay. Uh, and then I went on maintenance drugs, and I've been on maintenance drugs uh, continuously uh, for the last 10 years, and the maintenance drugs are keeping me alive. Um, mm. We could talk more about, you know, life as a cancer patient in continuous therapy now or later. Yeah, we're going to get into it. I'm fascinated to know because this is something that's come up when I've had people on the show who have survived cancer. Um, I've had one in particular say that she had to go through the realization, the discovery that cancer is a chronic illness and not necessarily a terminal one. And it seems like your experience of cancer 
is much along those lines that you're living with a chronic illness that you're managing with drugs. And while when we hear the C word, it sends us all into, you know, sort of the terminal territory and concerns about our livelihood, you've been able to live a a fairly healthy lifestyle for the last decade because you're doing what you need to do to maintain your health, right? That's correct. In fact, Mm. the the night that my first night in the hospital when that oncologist, who's still my community oncologist, by the way, uh, left, he said, I don't want you to go on the internet because all the data are old. Well, of course, I immediately went on the internet. Of course. (laughs) And, you know, they said the uh, average survival, the median survival from diagnosis was three to five years at that time. Mm. Uh, Well, it actually it was better already by then because they had found some new drugs. Mm. Uh, But people still die if they have an aggressive form of multiple myeloma, they still die in 18 months. Mm. Uh, And I would say that the average survival from diagnosis now is probably eight to 10 years. So I'm pushing up against uh, the limit. And the reason that you die is because you run out of treatments. Uh, Myeloma mutates and it finds its way around the drugs. Uh, and so you run, you run out of, you run out of things for them to give you and you die. Uh, so there is a terminal aspect to this diagnosis for sure. Some, some people would say it is still, well, it is an incurable blood cancer. It is not curable hmm. period. And, uh, many people die of it. I plan to live till I'm 95 and die of something else entirely. Uh, that's the attitude. (laughs) Um, the, the, the drugs have their own downsides, but the upside is much bigger. You know, the downside is peripheral neuropathy, fatigue, but you can uh, still live with those things, but I can manage those things and, and I can have, uh, a full life and, I can take care of the other parts of me that are essential mm. to um, to my health in general, but also to being ready for whatever the cancer or whatever the drugs they give me throw at me. Right. You mentioned that your older son and your wife were made aware of the diagnosis a little bit before you were and pulled themselves together. And I'm wondering what that advocacy journey has looked like for you. Did you find that you needed to lean on them or lean on those close to you in a new way after your diagnosis? And and if so, how has that impacted your relationships with Mm -hmm. those closest to you? I'm very fortunate to have a magnificent woman as my Mm -hmm. wife. Um, And I have four wonderful children, but she was the advocate. Mm -hmm. Because when you hear the C word, all of a sudden you start hearing every third word. I mean, you stop processing truly. And what did he say? You know, Mm -hmm. what, what was the, what was the specific about this? I I would just, I wouldn't be able to, to take it all in. Sure. And it's still true today Mm -hmm. at times. Like we hit, there have been various crises through the Mm -hmm. 10 years. It hasn't all been an easy ride. No. Um, and when the crises hit, it happens again. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, she made a binder and kept copious notes. She's the one who would get on the phone to advocate to get the appointment for the necessary screening test or whatever had to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think uh, without question, it made me appreciate her more. I'll be honest with you. Yeah. Uh, and love her more deeply. Mm. Uh, and respect her more because she's so capable. Yes. Um, and then she got cancer. Uh, oh my goodness. She got cancer about five years ago. She got breast cancer and she had to do the whole thing. She had to do chemo, surgery, radiation. She's Mm. on tamoxifen now. Uh, Wow. So she's also a survivor. Yes. Mm. Uh, 
So I got to be the advocate. Yeah. That situation. So we got to flip roles. Yeah. Uh, so you've really seen it from both sides. Yes. Mm, amazing. And, and to know that it's deepened your relationship is very promising, isn't it? That it works when we show up for each other. Yeah, it does work. And, yeah. and I would, I would, no cancer patient in my view should ever do the acute part alone. Like later when you're, you're repeating things and everything's working fine, it's mm-hmm. okay. Uh, you don't need to drag someone with you to the appointment to go over the same stuff. Um, but as soon as it kicks up and, and gets dangerous or frightening, uh, urgent, uh, she's there with me, you know, yeah. for the big important meetings, even now, 10 years later, she's mm-hmm. there with me because I don't, I, I can't go alone. I, I'm not efficient enough mm. uh, when, when that's happening. I become but, a, yeah. pa- a patient. Do you know what yeah. I mean? And I think it's, that's an interesting point is that you're allowed to become a patient in these circumstances when you have the kind of support that you've had, you know, um, that you're allowed to surrender a little bit to the experience. Um, and if you can find someone to advocate for you, that that's an important important thing to experience, to be able mm-hmm. to give in to what's going on so that you can actually find a way to get better and be human. Yep. Mm, absolutely. Well, I do, I do shift into that gear in those times where I say, I'm going to, I need to focus on taking care of me. I need to be about me. I don't, I can't be about my kids or other things this is a moment where I need to focus on me and it's not a selfish thing. It's a, it's a necessary thing uh, in order that I can manage what's coming at me physically and emotionally. Uh, And almost everybody who's been through a difficult uh, chronic illness or acute problem knows what I'm saying. Like, okay, I'm shutting everything else down. (laughs) I'm, I'm going to focus on what I have to do. You're doing self-care. Yeah, self-care. Hashtag self-care. There we go. So what's a typical day looking like for you as you're balancing the demands of work and life? You've started an entirely new career out of this diagnosis, like so many of us do, right? And you're managing symptoms day to day. It sounds like you're also taking care of the mental health side as well as the physical side. How are you making all of the puzzle pieces fit? from day to day? Well, right now there isn't an average day. Every day is like every other day uh, with COVID-19. So, well, that's a, that's a real special <laughs> wrench in the works there. Um, but I will try to, to, to answer uh, your question, taking into account even that COVID-19 is here. Uh, First of all, a long time ago, I figured out there were only three things I could do. I could follow my doctor's advice, take my medicine, and look after my physical and emotional health. Those are the three things I could absolutely do. Uh, And so physical and emotional health ranks very high. I get up in the morning, and uh, my running shoes, my workout shoes, and workout clothes are next to the bed. Uh, And I go downstairs, turn on the computer, check my emails, read all this healthcare information, uh, do anything that's urgent, finish that, and then I work out. And either I work out on the treadmill or I work out with weights, I work out. Now I'm working out probably every day, but usually six days a week. Uh, And it is because I have become convinced, you know, I'm not a young man anymore that I need to stay fit in order to look after my health in general, but really to be ready for whatever they throw at me. Uh, You know, the stem cells that are in the freezer in Boston, uh, if they do a stem cell transplant with those, uh, that's a very taxing procedure. So when I'm feeling down and I don't want to work out, I say, you're in training for a stem cell transplant. Get your butt downstairs absolutely, and and do something. Um, So I work out. Uh, I try and eat, you know, reasonably well. Um, and then I work. And for me, work gives me gives my life purpose, especially what I'm doing right now. 
Uh, and I've always wanted in all that I've ever done, uh, all my work to have purpose, uh, and to feel like in some way I was doing something that had value beyond just getting paid. Uh, and so that's a big part of what, you know, uh, makes what gets you out of bed. Yeah. What makes you happy? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so I work and, and, you know, I start the day at 6 a.m. And usually I'm not done till four or five in the afternoon. Uh, and now in the days of COVID, you know, it's not meeting my wife for dinner at a restaurant or going to an event at my kid's school uh, or going out to a movie. Uh, it is um, what are we going to make for dinner? <laughs> Eating has yeah. become a much more important part of life. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, like when we're done here, I'll go make uh, dinner tonight. Mm. Uh, and then, you know, uh, binge watching TV shows. Uh, yeah. We're big movie buffs. Uh, mm. So that's how the day looks now. And the important stuff uh, mm. is for me, the things that contribute to looking after my physical and emotional health and feeling mm. like I'm making a contribution in the world. And I don't know if I'm one of those people who will ever completely retire. You know, I, mm. I retired uh, officially at the end of 2016 so I could do the work that I'm doing now with patients for affordable drugs. Mm. Uh, but my uh, youngest son says my retirement is an alternate fact because uh, <laughs> I'm busy. Yeah. Well, why don't you tell us more about patients for affordable drugs and, and why you founded it and what you're working toward with this organization. Patients for Affordable Drugs is the only national patient organization focused exclusively on policies to lower drug prices. We're independent, we're bipartisan, and we don't take money from anybody who profits from the development or distribution of prescription drugs. That's what we love uh, to hear. Um, I, I decided to do this because of my experience as a patient. Uh, uh, and it was searing for me to find out just how expensive and how difficult it was for people who were trying to manage all these healthcare expenses and among them prescription drugs. Uh, and I had been doing health policy work for longer than I care to tell you. Uh, <laughs> and here in Washington. Uh, and near the end of that time, I actually began to work for people who were trying to find ways to lower the prices of prescription drugs. Um, and so I became more and more frustrated because there were no patient organizations speaking out about prescription drug prices. And the reason they don't is simply uh, all those all those organizations take money from drug companies. A study in the New England Journal of Medicine a couple of years ago found that 83% of uh, patient organizations with budgets in excess of $7.5 million a year take money from the drug companies. Now, they use that money for good purpose. They use it for patient education, patient support, to advocate for new drugs, you know, especially for diseases that don't have treatments. Um, and all that's good, and we don't want that to go away. Um, but on drug prices, they are constrained. And we know it's true because it's been written about in you know, multiple publications uh, that when uh, patient groups try to speak out on drug pricing, they hear from their drug company funders uh, who say it's hard to be nice to you when you talk about me the way you do. Yeah. There's a great story that ran in the New York Times looking at this. Uh, and what happened when the Multiple Sclerosis Society tried to speak out on drug prices. They're very mm. good on drug prices, by the way. They're brave. Yeah. But my group, the International Myeloma Foundation, they're scared to death. They will not address drug pricing. Yeah. Uh, and the reason is they don't want to lose their funding. Uh, which comes so, from the drug companies which a comes lot from of the, the time. Drug companies. Yeah. No, it does. A huge amount of their funding. Mm. So... One day in the summer of 2016, I woke up and I had an epiphany. And the epiphany was, hey, if no one else is going to do this, maybe you're supposed to try. Mm. And it came to me in my head like, oh, this is what I should do. 
And I actually knew what I was going to do uh, if my wife said yes. So that morning I went downstairs to have coffee with her and I said, honey, can I retire? Can I work for free? Can we put in some of our own money to jumpstart it? Uh, and she said, yes. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that started this process of uh, figuring out how to launch a, a 501c3 organization. Now we have a 501c4 as well that mm-hmm. uh, can do political and legislative, <laughs> excuse me, political and legislative work. Mm-hmm. Um, and the two main things we do, it's really very simple at, at its core. We collect patient stories and amplify those stories to policymakers and elected officials. So if you go to our website, patientsforaffordabledrugs.org, mm-hmm. you'll find a map. And on that map are 24,000 patient stories, uh, stories of everyday people from all over the, the country. And you can search uh, the map and read the stories. Uh, and these are just people who are struggling to pay for drugs that are way, way, way too expensive. Yeah. So we collect those stories and we amplify those stories to policymakers and elected officials, and we train patients to be advocates. Mm. Uh, so we've had patients testify before state legislatures all over the country on network news. We've had patients come to Washington to testify before congressional committees. We prepare them. We train them. We equip them to speak for themselves. Uh, and now we have patient advocates in all 50 states. Uh, and we're running a patient advocate training tomorrow night, as a matter of fact. Wow. Um, so we're trying to give people voice. We're trying to let their stories be the power of what we do. Um, and then the other thing we do, the second thing, is we are building a larger community of patients and allies that can be mobilized in support of policies to lower drug prices. It's Uh, so exciting. So, so exciting. Yeah. uh, We, there wasn't a patient organization speaking on drug pricing until we stepped into the space. Mm. Uh, And today we're busy. Uh, you know, we're working hard, wonderful staff, uh, and, you know, we're working hard right along, uh, even though we, we can't get near each other. Right. Yeah. And for us, it's especially important. You know, we have a mom of a child with cystic fibrosis, of course, lungs, uh, big with cystic fibrosis. Yeah. He's at incredibly high risk. Mm. We have, uh, 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 someone else with Crohn's disease, Mm -hmm. someone else with diabetes, Um, you know, so we, we, we not only engage patients out there in America, our staff is patients, Mm. uh, among our staff, our patients who who are living it and care about trying to address this problem. And our goal is simple. We need to fix a system that is rigged. And, and I use that word advisedly mm. to benefit the people who make money on it at the expense of the people it's supposed to serve. Absolutely. And the big drug companies have spent 40 years and billions of dollars building a system that enables them to dictate the prices of drugs, literally dictate the prices of drugs. Uh, there is no free market for drugs. It's all based on a system of laws and regulations that they put in place that benefit them. And uh, the net result is they have monopolies. Uh, they set prices wherever they want. They monopolies, by the way, because they can collect unlimited. They can raise price whenever they want. They have an unlimited amount of money to lobby and engage in political activity to protect their monopolies. Uh, and so it's a it's a challenge uh, to take them on, but. In the absence of a patient voice, a real authentic patient voice, pharma fills the void with paid groups. And I don't mean the, uh, the real patient groups. I mean, they sometimes do things they shouldn't do, but pharma also invents groups. Like there's a group called Patients Rising, another called the Alliance for, uh, uh, for Medical, or Alliance for Prescription Drug Access, I forget want something like that. And there are front groups, um, but they, you know, write letters to members of Congress and 
they're completely uh, owned and operated by big pharma. So we think our work is important in providing a counterbalance and ensuring that the real stories of real people are brought forward uh, because they can make a difference. Absolutely. Yeah. It's so exciting. I know when I first found out about Patients for Affordable Drugs, I was so thrilled because, as you say, to find a group that is comprised of patients working for patients without any ties to the sort of mess of, of political landscape that comes along with, with big pharma. And also that what you're doing is a bipartisan effort, um, which is such a rare gem these days as well, politically speaking, you know, to be able to appeal to politicians across, across party lines uh, and really get them to understand the crisis that we're undergoing right now um, and to be able to try and, and make these drugs affordable. The fact that you're also a patient who was thinking about other people, you know, this is an awareness that expands more, I think, when we get a diagnosis. But this idea of the whole rather than the individual is also something that we grapple with in our 24-hour news cycle right now. And this is the antidote, is this community approach. And I think it's extremely exciting. Um, and I, I certainly encourage everyone listening to check out Patients for Affordable Drugs because what they're doing is changing our world for the better. But, um, you know, I'm biased because I'm a patient, but um, I'm happy to be on that side of things. And uh, it's just so thrilling that we have an outlet like this um, that we can turn to. And as you say, sharing stories, which is exactly what we do on the show here. So, yes. um, you know, really being invested in those stories um, because that's how you make change. That's how you create change. I'm wondering also, given your experience, I want to dig into healthcare a little bit. Um, and, and I'm wondering if you see our healthcare system working for patients and in what ways specifically, you know, aside from this drug pricing monopoly issue that you're seeing it fall short and requiring improvement and, and perhaps ways in which you could imagine improvement immediately? Well, first, let me tell you that we do drug pricing and we stick pretty closely to drug pricing. Why? Because there are many, many groups out there that work on behalf of coverage issues uh, and Obviously, coverage is critical to the health and well-being of Americans, uh, everybody. Um, You've got to have access to good health care that you can afford. When I say good health care, I mean a health care plan that provides comprehensive benefits uh, and uh, that doesn't have co-payments and deductibles that break you. Um, so coverage is critical, and we're seeing... Um, how that plays out with COVID-19 and in relationship to drug prices. So tens of millions of people have lost their jobs. And because about half of all Americans get their health care through their employers, the people who have been laid off, many of them have lost their health insurance too. And if you don't have health insurance, I'll bring it back to drug prices, you pay list prices for drugs. Now, in our system, insurance companies and something called PBMs negotiate for lower prices. By the way, they don't do it because they care about us. They do it because they make money by doing it. Yeah. But that's how it works. So you have a list price, and then you have a so-called net price. The net price can be vary from your plan to my plan to someone else's plan. Nobody knows what the net prices are. They're all secret. It's part of our rig system. Uh, but the point is that if you lost your insurance uh, because you got laid off, you are now forced to pay list prices. And list prices are painful. I'll give you my example. The list price for just the four cancer drugs I am taking right now is $875,000 per year. Unbelievable. Uh, now, why am I taking four cancer drugs? And by the way, I take a bunch of other drugs to manage those drugs. Sure. Um, but why am I taking four drugs? Well, it's because of my disease. I'm I am refractory to two of those drugs. Do, you, do people know what refractory is on your show? It means when the drug bounces off the cancer. 
Mm. Uh, so I started to fail on two of those four drugs. So they added a third to try and turn them up. And then they added a fourth to try and get a better uh, impact from the combination. Why did they do that? Because they never want to leave any of the drugs behind. Because when they're in my rearview mirror, when we can't squeeze any more out of them, uh, then they're no longer available to me. Yeah. Um, but Well, then it's the critical. Yeah. Uh, so the point is, these drugs, if you're exposed to list prices, you're screwed. Uh, and it isn't just my situation where, you know, it's almost unbelievable to say $875,000 a year. Some of these drugs are just are drugs that are 100000 a year, 150000 a year, 200000 a year. And the so-called patient assistance programs uh, don't work for everybody. Uh, and maybe the money's there and maybe it's not. Uh, and actually, they're just ways for the drug companies to market more drugs. So the system presently, to go back to your question, uh, is not set up to see to it that every American has access to comprehensive coverage that is affordable for them. And that is the biggest breakdown from my perspective as a patient in our whole healthcare system. And it doesn't matter whether you're paying for a doctor or whether you're paying for the MRI or whether you're paying for uh, infusion uh, uh, or whether you're paying for over-the-counter prescription drugs. Um, we need a system where every American has access to affordable, comprehensive care, and we don't have that. Uh, and it's... it's um, it is a huge failing, and I don't care whether you like Obamacare or you don't like Obamacare or whether you think someone else could do something better. I, in some ways, I really don't care how we get there uh, as long as when we're done, we have comprehensive, affordable care. Now, it is not comprehensive if they sell you a plan that doesn't cover pre-existing conditions, that doesn't cover certain kinds of diseases or that has an annual limit on it uh, that they will pay or a lifetime limit, those are not comprehensive programs. So if someone comes up to me who politically doesn't think the way I think and says, I think I have a way to get comprehensive, affordable care to everybody and it will make sure that folks get the coverage they need at prices they can afford, uh, I say, tell me how. You know, show me, because that's the key thing for me for healthcare from my perspective. Uh, for health, does that look like the removal of corporate interest from healthcare entirely? Do you think? I think that's not doable in America. Um, yeah, my uh, one of my sons uh, <laughs> who uh, holds uh, some political views very strongly. Uh, will argue with me vociferously about the need to, you know, get rid of for-profit healthcare uh, and have single payer. Uh, they do it all over the world, by the way. They also do hybrid systems all over the world. In Northern Europe and Scandinavia, they have systems that have the government collect and pay for care, but it's delivered through private sector uh, organizations. So it doesn't all have to be all one way or all the other. But until you tell me that we are all covered with comprehensive, affordable health care, we have not succeeded. Mm, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting that, you know, when I ask about the removal of corporate interests that like, you know, your understanding from within the system here is that there has to, the money has to come from somewhere, right? Yep. Um, and so it's more about the ethical involvement of corporate interest, it sounds like to me, rather than this gross for-profit um, you know, system that we have going now where you hear stories in the news about, I mean, some of the biggest ones that we know about are the pricing for insulin, um, pricing for AIDS prevention drugs and, and HIV drugs. You know, when we see price gouging of patients um, and huge 
in- increases in these prices over short periods of time. That's when we really take notice. But then you're someone here who's dealing with that just to stay alive day to day. And if you, as you say, you didn't have comprehensive health care. Um, so it's really fascinating to me how that all shakes out. And you're absolutely right until it's well, affordable for everyone. Even by the way, with the good care that I am fortunate to have, I have Medicare, I have a Medicare supplement, I have a prescription drug plan through Medicare. My out-of-pocket for one of those drugs, it's an oral drug called Pomalist, is more than $15,000 a year. I have to pay out of my pocket. Mm. That's in addition to my premiums and deductibles and for all the other parts of healthcare. Um, Even if we built a system that pulled government out of insurance, if you will, uh, let's say Medicare for all. Um, yeah. we would not be getting rid of the drug companies. Hmm. They'd still be there. And right. you'd still have a situation, as you just referenced with insulin. With insulin, three drug companies control 90% of the global market for insulin. They are like a cartel. And they are uh, Sanofi, Eli Lilly, and Novo Nordisk. And in the past 20 years, they have that moved their drug prices in lockstep. One moves it, they, the, the other two move it. And uh, they keep control of the prices uh, for insulin. And we do not have competitive biosimilar generic insulins uh, for people who need them. And the net result is the price of insulin has gone up 300% over a recent 10-year period. Why do they do that? because they can't. We let them do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'd be okay. I don't think we're ever going to get rid of for-profit companies in all of healthcare, but where they're for-profit, we need good protections and guardrails so that our system works for the people it's designed to serve, and it doesn't just work for them to maximize profits, Mm -hmm. which is how it works now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm wondering also, given your experience um, as a patient in this healthcare system, do you think that uh, there's been some some privilege or bias at play because of the way you present? Um, you know, specifically showing up in the emergency room, going to different doctors' appointments. Do you think being a white man using the tools of this system? has given you any advantage uh, in situations where you needed to be seen? Well, in every other part of my life, I am the beneficiary of privilege. Uh, I will say something that I don't often say to anybody, but I'm going to say it to you today in this interview. Oh, goody. Um, my wife is mixed race. Mm. Uh, so my son is mixed race. Mm. Uh my wife grew up very much in an African-American context. Mm. My wife has taught me a lot of things about the way the world really works. Yeah. Uh, And uh, the fact of the matter is that what is happening right now, again, COVID, Mm. you know, the death rate, among African-Americans is off the charts. The death rate among Hispanics Mm. uh, is, is also elevated. Uh, And is that happening because they are at greater risk of the disease Mm -hmm. Uh, because they have more high blood pressure? Why do they have more high blood pressure? Mm -hmm. Are they not being treated properly? So that pre that preexisting condition isn't rendering them at greater risk of death uh, from COVID-19. Is it that they don't have, good health care to begin with, that when they access the system, it didn't work as well for them. Mm-hmm. You know, I am well aware of the fact that I can afford the care I need. Uh, it's painful at times, mm-hmm. honestly, but I can afford the care I need. Uh, I can get on an airplane twice a year and fly to Boston uh, to see the the finest specialist, I think, in the world for multiple myeloma. Uh, and it's partly because of my entire life as a white man. Uh, uh, and 
I, I know that we, you know, I know that outcomes are different hmm. for people who do not have access to the same, to the same, op, not opportunities, A level of treatment, resources, resources, resources. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, I sometimes talk to other patients around the country there. I'll never forget a patient who I talked with who lived down in Louisiana. Uh, a friend called me and said, will you call him and talk to him? He was on Medicaid. The struggles. Now he had wonderful doctors. The doctors, when he got to them were terrific. And, and, uh, but the struggles that he had accessing the system and things that I just said, well, tell him you want to do this. And it wasn't that simple for him mm. uh, because of the barriers that he encountered. And he was a, a person of color, I imagine. Yes, he was African-American. Yeah. yeah. Um, so um, all I can say is that uh, my situation as an as a older white male in patient land is the same as it is everywhere else in, mm. in my world. Right. Uh, But I think it's important here, you know, that to have someone of the utmost privilege, acknowledging that privilege is a really important step in beginning to see where the privilege occurs, see where the lack of privilege occurs and be able to address that um, and try to create equality across the board, which is part of your mission, you know. Um, And it's very refreshing to hear that you are plugged into these other stories and understanding of the plight that other people are living through, um, especially at the head of an organization that's working to help patients. You know, we, we're, uh, it's very reassuring to know that there's, there's somebody who sees the bigger picture here. Um, and I think it's important for people to understand that as well. And I'm wondering, you know, given that question of privilege and given that you're living with what is an invisible illness, you know, to the naked eye, you're just a regular guy, you know, have you also ever been in a a position where you've been confronted and forced to justify the existence of your illness to others? No, I'm lucky because I, in that regard, because nobody knows what causes multiple myeloma. If they did, they'd probably find a way to blame me for it. Some people would, not all (laughs) people, not all people. Right. Uh, So it's a mystery. So they can't say, oh, you smoked, you got lung cancer. Oh, you were overweight. So, you know, you've got diabetes. Oh, you didn't take care of your uh, physical health in other ways. And so you have high blood pressure. Uh, You know, that stuff. Um, Blaming people for being sick. Uh, It infuriates me. if we were all perfect, it would be different. Um, but we're not robots. No. And, and we're people who struggle with, you know, different challenges. Mm. I'm also a recovering alcoholic for 35 years. Wow. Um, so that they will blame me for. Right. I know what it's like to be blamed. That's interesting. Mm. Uh, you're making me think about things that I don't often think about, certainly don't talk about. Mm. Uh, but the... the um, uh, the stigma that attaches to addiction is tremendous. And you compare that people, to cancer. It's a very different story, whole different thing. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's one of the reasons that Alcoholics Anonymous is still anonymous. Mm-hmm. Um, because you, you know, it can be a real barrier for people who are in recovery uh, and so I have experienced having to do a little tiptoe dance, mm-hmm. uh, with that illness that I have. And I believe alcoholism and drug addiction are, are diseases. I um, couldn't agree more. And I'm really very happy that you brought it up too, because it's interesting that you're living with two different invisible illnesses, yeah. but you're still managing day to day, you know, um, but that are perceived from the outside in two very different ways. 
completely different ways. Mm. And I'll tell you, if there was, if they knew the etiology, if they knew the cause of multiple myeloma, mm. they probably, some would people would probably say, you did this to yourself. Right. Uh, and, um, and when will we understand that nobody really wants to hurt themselves? No. That much. Well, for most people don't want to. Yeah. That No, but then you're talking about even a different, men, uh, different mental illness. health issues. Yes. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And it, but it is this sort of never-ending spiral of blame, you know, as you mentioned of stigma, uh depending on what you're dealing with. Um and it's interesting that you've got a cancer as you say that no one can sort of place blame on a particular area of your life and the way that you've lived it. Um but that you live in these two disparate and yet very much the same spaces. Um, that's quite an interesting dichotomy to be living with, I think. Well, and the, the ability to be able to have both, manage both, and then know that, if I, if I walked into a room and, and started announcing to people that I'm an alcoholic, somebody, somebody in that room is going to say, yeah, there's, you know, there's your, your fault. But as soon as I say I have an incurable blood cancer, nobody knows what causes it. Oh, it's all sympathy. Uh, if they're listening, most people don't listen that much. Well, know. that's part of it too, isn't it? How much are people interested in other people's stories? And our job is to make them important. Yeah. Um, Someone once said to me, we wouldn't care so much what people think about us if we knew how seldom they did. Mm. Yeah, that's pretty powerful, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. It's freeing and yet also terrifying. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we're going to head into sort of the last couple questions, the end portion of our interview. And I wondered if there's anything you wanted to add before I get you into some top three lists because we've talked about so much today, but I want to make well, I sure. Think that I, would li- yeah, I would like to add something if you'll, please, if you'll allow please. me. I, I would like to give a little commercial for patients for affordable drugs. Oh, absolutely. And we, tell everyone where to find you. We don't try to raise money from patients. You know, we go, go to foundations. My wife and I kick in uh, and sometimes people send us money, but we don't ask people for money. All, the only thing we ask people for is their story and their email address so that we can engage them in our community because their story is our power. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, you know, if people are listening and they can go to patientsforaffordabledrugs.org, leave their story, leave their email address, get on our SMS test, text distribution. Uh, we don't ask much. You know, we send an email you know, maybe once a week. Uh, occasionally we say, hey, we push this button and send a letter to your elected official. Which is a great way to like, issue. and that's it, a great way to be engaged civically without having to do too much. They're making it easy for you. You're on the same page. You can just click a button. That's what it is. Uh, and yet for us, we could not do our work without the stories and without the people who are willing to do that. Uh, and so that's our currency. That's our stock and trade. Uh, and so if people are listening and uh, they're interested in the issue, it's a very low uh, level. It's a very low lift. Uh, that's not good English. <laughs> we won't ask much, but for us, it means a great deal. Yes, absolutely. All right, I'm ready. All right. Well, let's get into the top three. Um, I'm wondering, so I have two top three lists for you. Number one is, what are your top three tips for someone who's entering this world of, be it stigmatized or otherwise, invisible chronic illness? It could be someone who already has a diagnosis. It could be someone who's in the course of looking for the diagnosis. What are your top tips for a new patient navigating this life of chronic illness? First, have an advocate and advocate. Uh, for yourself. Uh, You may be doing it. She or he may be doing it. But um, the system doesn't work all by itself. Even with the best doctors and nurses, um, you have to be an advocate. uh, And you have to ask questions. You have to push. uh, 
And so don't take no for an answer necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Sounds like know. it also involves, you can seek a second opinion as well, doesn't well, it? I, I tell all the multiple myeloma patients, you have to go have a second opinion. And the reason you have to go have a second opinion is because only about 33,000 people will be diagnosed with multiple myeloma this year. It truly is a, an orphan disease, small population, mm -hmm. only about 100,000 alive at any given point in time. Wow. Um, so you really want to go places. There's lots of research that shows the more of a procedure or the more patients a physician treats, the better their outcomes are. They're better at it. They have more practice. They have more access to data. Yeah. Uh, and so um, always go for a second opinion and go somewhere where they specialize in your condition. You may go home and work with your community oncologist. I go to my community oncologist every two weeks for infusion uh, because I can't go to Boston for that. Um, and uh so get that second opinion and, and then put it to work in, in your care uh, and uh, be an advocate. Um, mm. What else? I, I know I had, I had these all lined up in my head <laughs> uh, and uh, they went away. Um, <laughs> that happens too. Forgive yourself, perhaps. <laughs> um, oh, this is kind of spiritual, a little touchy-feely. Well, go for it. Um, we love that. Uh, try and find what you're grateful for in the midst of it all. Um, you know, I am very grateful to be able to do the work I'm doing because it took a really bad card that I got dealt and it turned it into a useful card. Uh, so I got cancer, but having cancer has actually been useful in, in this work. Uh, and so um, when I go through my gratitude list, which I do just about every day, some days I might spend more time on it than others. Uh, finding what I'm grateful for uh, is very important to me keeping my head in a uh, good place. Um, and so I really am a big advocate. It's not hard. doesn't require any given, uh, you know, um, religious point of view. Uh, you know, you can do it. You can do it no matter who you are to try and uh, look at what there is to be grateful for. It makes life better. That, yeah. Uh, and there are studies that actually reinforce what you're saying too. Yeah. Meditation, I believe it, gratitude. I, yeah. I, I believe it counts. Uh, and then make sure that you find a physician or a nurse practitioner or uh, whatever it is that is your preference, who you decide that you want to steer by. Now, that does not mean you don't get second opinions, but for my disease, multiple myeloma, there's an enormous amount of clinical variation around the country in how they treat it. I go to Mayo, and the doctor will recommend this approach. Another doctor down the hall might recommend a different approach. Go to Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, and they may recommend a different approach. There's a wild variation in the uh, general standard of care. Um, it was so overwhelming for us that one of the most peaceful things we did was to say, this is the doctor we're going to put our faith in. This is the doctor we're going to steer by. This doctor will be our North Star. Uh, and when we did that, it all got easier. Now, I love him and I trust him completely, but I also have my community oncologist as a resource. I also know other myeloma doctors around the country now. So I will not hesitate to call and say, hey, what are you doing in this given situation? Um, 
by the way, the fact that I can do that is part of my privilege. Uh, my point is that we were able to let go of anxiety at the moment that we said, for now, we could change tomorrow. Yes, yeah. But for now, we're going to put our hand, ourselves into this person's hands and yeah. uh, steer by him or her. And that level uh, and, of trust and surrender, I think, is important too, isn't it? You know, yes, it is. It, it was, it was for me, uh, especially mm-hmm. because you know I'll read everything I can get my hands on and yeah. get myself completely confused and all <laughs> wrapped up and yeah, uh, tangled up in my own thinking. Thanks, Google. Uh, <laughs> yes, that's the downside. Absolutely. Uh, Information. (laughs) Yeah, I love those. All right, our final top three list. Um, And this is always a a fun one. I'm wondering what your top three things are in your life that give you unbridled joy. So things that you're unwilling to compromise on, perhaps despite lifestyle changes, treatments. It can be guilty pleasures, secret indulgences, comfort activities. Just three things that fill you up that you turn to for joy. Well, my family, uh, and in particular, vacations with my family. So I have four children, uh, 32, 30, 27, and 18. And uh, when I'm on vacation with them, we try and take a vacation once a year together. Uh, and they're still good about coming. Uh, there's no, no grandchildren yet, which makes it easier. Uh, and when I'm on vacation with those four kids and we're doing things together, and my wife, and we're doing things together. It's the best. It it's like perfection. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, you know, we go someplace where we hang out together and we play board games. And you know, we go sightseeing and we go to eat good food and yeah, we have a wonderful time together. That is my that is unbridled joy mm-hmm. for me. Favorite uh, people doing fun things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's number one. Number two is I will not uh, give up my physical activity, my workouts. Why? Because I believe they are uh, essential, first of all, to my physical health. But, you know, they do release endorphins. And I can feel crummy and get on the treadmill for 45 minutes um, and burn a lot of calories and get off the treadmill. And I know those endorphins got pumping because I feel better. Uh, and so for the physical and emotional lift that I get, uh, I, I, I make sure that that is in the day and if people try and early, because if I wait too late in the day, then I get lazy and I say, oh, well, you know, I find something else to do. Not a good idea. <laughs> um, you figured but, yourself out. <laughs> yeah. It gives me great pleasure and it makes my life better. Uh, mm. and then I would say, you know, uh, guilty pleasure, especially during the time of COVID, <laughs> is, you know, after the day and after the dinner is cooked and the dishes are done, sitting down to binge on some really junk television and turn everything off yeah. uh, is my current third guilty mm. pleasure. Uh, yeah. And, you know, <laughs> trash TV. <laughs> Uh, it's just time to like, let it be. And my wife yeah. and I do that together. Yeah. Uh, and the 18 year old is home now with us. And so the first show of the evening is usually one that he wants to watch because then he goes <laughs> off to do his thing. Mm. Uh, and then, you know, we'll watch another show and it's pure indulgence. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I can't tell you that there's any, um, uh, any redeeming, uh, um, <laughs> well, it helps you unwind yeah, it helps, and that's well, important except for enjoyment. That's yeah. the, so those are they. That's wonderful. David, can you tell our listeners once more where they can find patients for affordable drugs and get involved? Patients for affordable drugs, just like it sounds all one word, patients for affordable drugs.org. Uh, awesome. and if you come, uh, I think the website's pretty easy to navigate. And if you have a story of you or someone you know or love uh, struggling to pay for prescription drugs, we'll take a story that's two sentences or two paragraphs or two pages. We don't care. Hmm. Uh, 
And if you're not a patient yourself and you don't have a story, if you give us your email address, we'll connect you. Uh, and uh, we would love to have you as a part of our community. David, it's been such an honor speaking to you today. I'm so glad we were able to arrange this. Lauren, I'm thank excited. you for having me. Yeah, thank you. I'm so excited for everyone to hear more about your story, you know, and to understand the heart uh, that has been behind the creation of Patients for Affordable Drugs and to learn more about P4AD. So um, thank you so much for joining thank us you. on the show today. And for sharing so much of your personal story. Um, I uh, think you got me. You pulled more out of me than most people ever It's my job. <laughs> what can I say, David? It's the effect I have on people. <laughs> well, so thank you so much for sharing so much and um, so openly. And, and we look forward to continuing to follow your journey, as well as to seeing what you continue to shake up uh, for the rest of us with our drug pricing. Great. Thank you. Thank you. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. 